Now, in this series, we're going to cover seven miracles of Jesus. And obviously, Jesus performed many more than seven miracles, but John singles out these seven miracles because they reveal something to us about the character and power of Jesus. See, God performed these miracles so that he could reveal that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we would believe in him and believe that he is the Messiah. As we start today's message, I want to ask you a question. What is your greatest need right now? Do you have a need that maybe is causing desperation for you? A need that is keeping you up at night? Or a need that's just kind of sitting in your stomach like a rock? If you thought that need could be solved, what would you be willing to do to solve it? Would you be willing to walk 25 miles uphill? Would you be willing to face potential criticism and shame? Would you be willing to lose your career? The answers to those questions depend on just how desperate the need is, don't they? Well, today we're going to look at a very desperate man who had a very pressing need. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, or if you have your Bible app, please go with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 43. So John chapter 4, verse 43. At the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. Now there's a a lot of backstory that's going on here. A lot has happened since our last event where Jesus turned water into wine. So let me kind of set the context for where Jesus has been and what's going on. See, when we looked at the miracle last week, he was in this village of Cana in Galilee. And Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel. And then after that miracle, Jesus travels down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover festival. Once Passover was finished, Jesus travels north back into Galilee and eventually makes his way back to the same village of Cana. And so verse 43 starts with, at the end of two days. Well, two days of what? Like what's, what's that referencing? Well, on Jesus' way back to Galilee, he goes through the region of Samaria. And you need to understand that a devout Jew wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would take a longer route around Samaria to get from Jerusalem to Galilee so they wouldn't run the risk of coming into contact with any Samaritans. But Jesus not only goes through Samaria, he has this incredible time or conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe you've heard of that story, but Jesus asks her for a drink She's completely blown away that a Jewish rabbi would speak to her in public. See, the strictest rabbis wouldn't even talk to their wives or daughters in public. So you can see why she's so caught off guard. He asks her for a drink and then he tells her about all of her past sins and that he can offer her living water. He then tells her that he is the Messiah. So she runs into the village, she runs into town and tells everybody, hey, you've got to come see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. Could it be that he's the Messiah? And so the villagers, the Samaritans come out and they meet Jesus and scripture tells us that many believed in him. 
In fact, they urged him to stay, and so he stayed with them for two days. So that's the two days that verse 43 is referencing. Then after that, he goes on to Galilee. Then in verse 44, we get this little snippet where Jesus said, He himself had said, a prophet is not honored in his hometown. That seems kind of out of place. What's that all about? I'd like to make two suggestions as to why that's important. If you think back to last week's message, Jesus used the phrase, my time has not yet come. And you actually see that used throughout the book of John. See, Jesus was keenly aware that if he spent too much time in areas where he would be honored as he should be, that it would speed up the confrontation he was going to have with the Jewish religious leaders. And so he goes back to Galilee because he knows he won't be honored there as much as he should be. They won't make as big a fuss about him there as if he would have stayed in Jerusalem. Second, I think there's an irony here that the Samaritans in the earlier part of chapter 4, who should have been the least likely to accept him, did believe in Jesus. But those who knew him the best, or at least they thought they did, didn't recognize who he really was. I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. Do we recognize Jesus for who he really is? Or have we put him in a box that we're comfortable with? As we continue in the verse, verse 45 says, Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem during the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. Or what did Jesus do there? What did Jesus do at the Passover celebration? Perhaps they saw him turn over the tables of the money changers at the temple. Or perhaps they heard him predict his death and resurrection as he does in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And we get another hint in John chapter 2, verse 23. It says that many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. Or some translations just say it believed in him. So now we've gone full circle and we find Jesus right back in Cana where he had turned the water into wine. And then John describes a new miracle that we see beginning in verse 46. It says, There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? So what do we know about this government official? Well, the word that's translated government official here literally means a royal person. He was most likely an officer in the government of Herod. And Herod was the ruler of Galilee under the authority of the Romans. So the Romans put Herod into power and the Romans supported Herod. And so for a devout Jew, this official in Herod's government would be no better than a Gentile. He would be tainted. And there was this underlying animosity and disdain that the Jews had for people in Herod's government. So there's something very scandalous about this man coming to Jesus for help. He would have been criticized and ridiculed by the Jews. And he also would have been ridiculed by his fellow officials in Herod's court for seeking the help of a Jew. In fact, if Herod got wind of it, it's likely he could even be kicked out and lose his position. But desperate times call for desperate measures. His son is dying. It was imminent. 
And as soon as he hears that Jesus has made his way back into Galilee, he drops everything that he's doing, and he travels the 20 to 25 miles, mostly uphill, to meet Jesus in Cana. And he begs Jesus to come and heal his son. Then in verse 48, Jesus says something that seems to break up the story again. He's not speaking to the man who is begging him to heal his son, though he's speaking to the crowds who had gathered around. See, by this time in Jesus' ministry, even though it was early, it was very common for crowds to be around Jesus. People had heard about the miraculous things that he had done, and they wanted to see it for themselves. And so when they heard this man beg Jesus to heal his son, it would have piqued their interest. They're all tuned in now to see what Jesus is going to do. What great miracle is he going to perform? And then Jesus challenges them in verse 48, and he basically asks them, why do you care about the miracles that I might do? And he's basically challenging them, and he's asking them, do you really want to encounter Jesus, or do you just want to see the cool things that Jesus can do? Were they attracted to him, or were they just attracted to the novelty? Did they really want to know the Son of God? Or were they just there to get their picture taken with the celebrity rabbi? And to be able to tell their friends, hey, you know that time Jesus healed the blind guy? I was there. I saw it. But this official is not there because he wants to see the celebrity rabbi. You know, this makes me think of my own heart. I know there's times I've been guilty of that. That I care more about what Jesus can do for me than I care about Jesus. I approach Jesus because of what I want him to do versus just because I want to spend time with him. There's a a Natalie Grant song that I think that captures this well. You've probably heard it. The lyrics go like this. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. Help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. Wouldn't it be great if that was the attitude of our hearts? See, but this government official, he's not there for a show. He doesn't care about meeting the celebrity rabbi. He is there because he has a very desperate and very personal need. We continue with the story, John 49. It says, The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, Go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. See, the official thinks Jesus is getting sidetracked when he tries to have this teaching moment with the crowd. And he's like, Lord, please, you got to come now before my little boy dies. Like, Jesus, come on, it's going to be too late. It's amazing how affliction and suffering can bring a little humility, isn't it? See, I doubt there is any way in the world that this government official would have addressed the carpenter from Galilee as Lord if his son weren't about to die. And we can probably relate to that too. He's out of options. He knows he can't save his son on his own. And maybe that's how you came to know Jesus as Lord of your life. He allowed suffering and affliction to humble you. And help you to realize that you need a savior. Or maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe that's what God is doing in your life as we speak. But Jesus doesn't get up and go with them. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to see the child or touch him. He just says the word, your son will live. And this isn't a prediction. It's a command. 
It's a word of power from God in the flesh. And then in verse 50, we see the man's reaction. He believed what Jesus said and started home. Can you believe this guy's faith? Like if I would have been there, I'd have been like, Jesus, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure he's going to live? Like how do I know? Don't get my hopes up, Jesus. Please don't play with me here. You've got to come. You've got to see. But he doesn't do any of that. Scripture simply says he believed him and started walking home. No more begging. No more pleading. He just stepped out in faith. Then he took another step and another step as he headed home. My guy's faith is incredible. And we continue on with the story in verse 51 through 53. It says, while the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one, at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Now, if you would have been this man, how fast would you have tried to travel from Cana back to Capernaum to see if your son was really going to live? Like, you probably would have run as much of it as you could, right? You would have been in the biggest hurry to see if he was still alive. Now, I have no idea how fast I could run 25 miles. I have never run 25 miles, and I never intend to run 25 miles. Now, some of you in here have run 26.2 miles. So you know how fast you could do that. I'll never know that because it's just crazy to run 26.2 miles. Now, I'm not saying you're crazy. Don't accuse me of that. I'm just saying it defies all common logic to run 26 miles unless someone is chasing you with a weapon. I just don't get it. But I do know from the hiking I've done over the years that a steady pace for me to just walk is about three miles an hour. So that means I could cover the 20 to 25 miles in seven or eight hours without even really rushing. And this government official hadn't even walked the whole way back yet when his servants met him. So he hadn't even covered the full 20 to 25 miles, right? And you can bet they were in a hurry to tell him the good news. He certainly could have made it back home the same day if he met Jesus at 1 o'clock. So he meets Jesus at 1 o'clock. But we read in the passage that when he meets his servants, they said he got better yesterday at 1 o'clock. My point is he wasn't even in a rush to get home. He had so much faith that Jesus said it and that settles it. He wasn't even in a hurry to go see his son. That faith is incredible. Then he meets his servants, and when they tell him that his son is healed, he asks, well, when did it happen? And they realize it happened at the exact time that Jesus said, your son will live. And we see the impact that this had in verse 53. It says, he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Now, in verse 50, we see that the man believed what Jesus had said. But this is different. There's no qualifier here. It just simply says the man believed in Jesus. His entire household believed in Jesus. Meaning they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And this expression, believed in Jesus, is used often in the Gospel of John. And it's when someone has a revelation of Jesus' true identity, of who he really is, and then they rest 
and that understanding. In other words, this government official has believed in the sense of becoming a Christ follower. And because of that, he's been reconciled to God and he's entering into an eternal relationship with him because he recognizes that Jesus is who he says he is. And he trusts in Jesus, not just in the miracles that Jesus would perform. We wrap up the story with John 4, 54. It says, this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. So this is the second time that Jesus' actions revealed that he is God. That's one of the characteristics of John's gospel is it emphasizes the deity of Jesus. The first sign Jesus performed was a great transformation turning water into wine. The second sign is an even greater transformation. He turns imminent death into life, which is a foreshadowing of what he would do at the cross for all who would place their faith in him. See, Jesus exchanged this imminent death for renewed life, and this miracle helps this government official and his family to see who Jesus really is. And because of that, they're saved. So that's kind of a lot of backstory, but now that we've looked at the story and its context, what are some principles that we can pull from this? Well, the first one is that Jesus can do miracles with only a word. See, in Scripture, we see Jesus perform miracles in a lot of different ways. One time he made mud and put it on a blind man's eyes to heal him. One time he used spit on someone's eyes to heal their blindness. Another time he put his fingers in the ears of a deaf mute man and then touched his tongue so that he could hear and speak. I'm not going to lie, that kind of gives me a gag reflex. Like, this poor guy hasn't talked in years. You know the first thing he said was like, thank you, but your fingers taste like earwax. <laughs> One time he took a woman by the hand and her fever left her. He touched a coffin and a dead boy came back to life. At other times, people just simply touched his clothes and they were healed. But see, there's no technique or special formula that Jesus needed to use to heal someone. He could just simply say the words. Your son will live, and the young boy was healed. You know, at the very beginning of creation, that's how God created everything. He simply spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and it happened. And this is no coincidence so this is one of the purposes of this miracle to reveal to us who Jesus really is, that he is God in the flesh. He is the Lord of life. He created all living things. You know, Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus has power over death, sickness, and disease, not because of some special healing technique, not because he knows the right prayer to pray, but simply because of who he is. Just as he said, let there be light, and there was light, he can say, your boy will live, and he will live. And guys, I hope that's an encouragement to you today. But that's the Jesus who invites us to bring our needs to him. And that's why we bring our needs to Jesus, because he has the power to do something about it. So we invite him to do the things that only he can do. We would be crazy not to bring our needs to him like this government official did. So that raises an important question, a question that probably all of us have wrestled with at one time or another. 
If Jesus has that kind of power, why do we ask sometimes and he doesn't answer? Is it because Jesus doesn't really care about my need? Is it because I don't have enough faith? Is it because I've done something wrong and Jesus is punishing me? Well, this story in John helps us understand that Jesus does miracles for a purpose. See, the seven miracles singled out by John have a unique purpose. And the first purpose is that they would reveal who Jesus really is. But also, based on verse 48, there's something else going on. See, Jesus not only used miracles to reveal himself, he used miracles to reveal what was going on in the hearts of the people around him. He used miracles to separate people who were really seeking God versus people who just wanted to witness a cool event. And so when we look at this miracle, Jesus had a very specific purpose in mind for the government official. He wanted to move him from a partial faith to a fuller faith and from a fuller faith to a saving faith. He wanted to change his eternity. And that's really what John says the purpose of all of Jesus' miracles are. So the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. See, John chose to single out certain miracles so that his readers would believe who Jesus is and what He came to do. And by doing that, they would have eternal life. And that's exactly what happened to this government official and to his entire household. God used a very desperate, very trying time to draw them to himself and to save them. And that may be the purpose of the desperate desperate situation you find yourself in today. Maybe God is using that to humble you and to help you realize that you need a rescuer. You need a savior and so he's drawing you to himself so that you can receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that only He can give. I wish I could tell you that God will always do the miracle you desire in the way you want Him to do it, but I can't. I would be lying to you. I don't know God's specific purposes for your life in this time. I do know that He wants to make you more and more like Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, that's God's desire for your life, that He wants to make you more and more like Jesus, and He will use adversity in our life to do that and to make us holy and make us more dependent on Him. Hebrews 12.10 says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. Now those afflictions that we go through can be you know, just grief and sorrow, might be financial pressure, could be relationship issues, or it may be physical healing, like in the case of the story today. So why does Jesus sometimes withhold a miracle when we ask for it? Is it because he lacks compassion? Is it because he lacks power? It's not necessarily because you've done anything wrong or that you don't have enough faith. It's because answering that prayer in the way that you want it answered may not be God's highest purpose for your life right now. And if we're honest, that answer can make us uncomfortable which takes us right back to the first step in a pursuit of God, and that's trusting Jesus. Trusting that He is good. Trusting that He loves us. Trusting that He knows what's best for us. Now with that in mind, let's talk about divine healing just for a minute. Because three of the seven miracles described in John involve divine healing. 
So I think it's fair that we spend some time talking about that. So what does the Bible say about healing? Well, in a nutshell, the Bible says that God does heal. His power has not changed. His compassion has not diminished. But the Bible doesn't promise that every illness will be healed in the time that we want it healed. In fact, next week we're going to look at a story where Jesus heals one man, but leaves a bunch of other people in the same place unhealed. We'll talk about that more next week. See, Jesus may have a different purpose for your situation than he did with the government official. And he's God and we're not, so we can't presume to know his purpose and we can't presume to know his timing. Here's a general principle. No matter what we ask for in prayer, God's answer may be yes, it may be no, or it may be wait. And when it comes to physical healing, the answer definitely might be wait. But I can promise you this. If you're praying for physical healing for someone who is a believer in Christ, the answer is never no. The answer is either yes or wait. Because one day, every believer in Christ will be healed. Every frailty, every disease, every sickness we've ever had will be healed when we meet Jesus in heaven. What a glorious promise. I hope that gets you excited. You know, I'm sure many of you have had to wrestle with this yes, no, or wait response when it comes to healing. I'll never forget the pleading in the voice on my voicemail in December of 2018. It was from a dad, and he said, please pray, I think I'm going to lose my boy. And I'm sure the desperation of this government official was very similar. And the voice on the other end of that line was Justin Olson. And I had been talking with Justin that week, and I'd already been praying for Dax. I knew that he wasn't well, but I could tell things had just jumped up to a whole other level by the urgency in his voice. So we jumped in the car, and I remember praying on the way down to the hospital. Ron and I were taking turns praying. When we got there, Justin already had a lot of family and friends there, so I just hugged Justin, and I hugged Jen. He let me know that they were trying one more emergency surgery. So I said, Justin, I'm going to get out of the way, and I'm just going to go over here, and I'm going to pray. Sorry. And I prayed as hard as I've ever prayed. You ever prayed so hard that you get tense? You're clenching your fists, your neck and your shoulders get tight. And I beg God, please use this surgery to heal Dax. Now normally when I pray for someone who has an illness, I always end my prayer with God, your will be done. We can trust you. But I didn't want to do that. (laughs) This was way closer to home than any other time I'd been in that situation. So I didn't pray for God's will to be done. I just prayed for healing. Then I started to get angry with God. And I remember at one point asking God, how in the world are you going to be glorified if he passes away? How can seeing someone's son die serve a higher purpose? And no sooner had that thought left my mind that I realized how foolish that is. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. See, God knows better than anyone what it's like to watch your son die to fulfill a higher purpose because he did it. He himself experienced it. And never was God more glorified than when Jesus, God in the flesh, went to the cross and died and completed the redemptive work that he started before creation. And God's anguish is even greater than mine was or even greater than Justin and Jen's was. You know why? Because God could have done something about it. He's almighty God. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. For you and for me, he allowed his son to die on that cross. 
And a God who would do that is a God I can trust when the answer is wait or no. I want to talk about one final point, and that's that Jesus invites us to ask for miracles. I want to go back to this government official for a moment because he demonstrates that these miracles were done to encourage people to come to true faith. So again, picture this government official. He's 25 miles away. He hears that Jesus is back in the region, and he drops what he's doing, and he went, and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. And the first thing that we see is he brought his need to Jesus. How often is that the last thing you and I do? We try every other resource we think we have access to. We try every other angle to fix it. And then finally, when we realize we can't do anything, we bring our need to Jesus. The second thing that we see is that he came boldly. See, because of his position in Herod's government, he knew he was going to be ridiculed. He knew he'd be considered an outcast. He knew he could lose his job, but that didn't stop him. The 25-mile walk uphill didn't stop him. And this man was passionate. He begged Jesus to come. Guys, there is nothing wrong with urgency in our prayers. In verse 49, when he says, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies, I guarantee you there's nothing casual or indifferent about that plead. I can even picture him trying to grab Jesus' arm as he says, Jesus, please come before it's too late. He repeated it and he stayed with it. And then when Jesus answers, he takes Jesus at his word. I'm just blown away by this guy's faith. See, you and I have every reason to approach Jesus just like that. With boldness, with passion, with perseverance, with trust, and with confidence that grows and matures as we get to know him more and more. To ask him to do what we can't do. To do what only he can do, what nobody else can do. When I asked at the beginning of this message about your greatest need, I'm sure hundreds of things went through your minds. Might be a financial crisis you're facing, could be a physical issue, could be a relationship, could be wisdom on a big decision that you need to make. But all of us have a greater need than any of those. A spiritual need. A need to be restored to a perfect, righteous, and holy God. To be able to have our relationship with the Creator put back in place. So we all need healing. We need healing from the terminal disease of sin. And God wants to heal you. I can tell you that I know God wants to heal you from that. And Jesus performed another miracle to make that happen. Jesus came down and He took on flesh and He lived a perfect, sinless life. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And then he went to the cross and he took the punishment on himself that you and I deserve. God's justice against us was satisfied in Jesus. Then he rose from the dead and he lives today to prove that he is who he says he is. See, the government official had to trust, excuse me, the government official had to decide if he was going to trust the word of Jesus. And we see in the story that he did. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, he has a word for you too. He says it in John 3.15, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So you have a decision to make too. My question is, will you take him at his word? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the truth in your word. 
I thank you, God, that when we don't understand why you don't answer certain prayers or why you answer them the way we do, I thank you that we can trust you. And the reason we can trust you is because you earned our trust all throughout history, all throughout Scripture, but most importantly at the cross where you sat by and you allowed your son to take our punishment. And so, God, we just ask you to forgive us. If there are times when we forget that, if there are times when we still doubt your love and your faithfulness to us, God, we're sorry. Because, God, that you would do that for us, we know just how much you love us. We know just how much you care about us. So, God, I I don't know everyone's situation in this room. God, I don't know the miracles that they're praying for. But, God, I pray that you would work in their life. And I pray that you would bring healing where they're asking for healing. God, if your answer is wait, or if your answer is no, I pray that they would know that they can trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.